0: Focus on the end times and where, where Jesus is in the end times um, and, and what to anticipate. And we do that at the Lord's instruction. Um, you know, He gave us instructions about to not be unaware, to be aware of the seasons and the times that are coming. And so we've always been like that for the years that we've been in business, <laughs> so to speak, and for the years that IHOP KC, which is sort of our uh, mothership, we kind of looked to them when we go where they are, they are, you know, prayer room writ large, and we are prayer room writ small, but with a wide area. The map on the back of the room there, with a 50 mile radius around this house of prayer, is our prayer focus. <coughs> and so, IHOP, uh, International House of Prayer Kansas City, IHOP KC, has been focused on end times as well. I'm talking about end times. And, and you know, many churches, more churches now than I've uh, seen in my you know, some 30 years of being a believer uh, are talking about revelation, about end times, about things uh, like that. And so, um, we've been talking about Habakkuk, backak, Habakkuk, um, the small three-chapter book in the uh, Old Testament, and we just finished last week. And you might wonder why go through Daniel. Well, Habakkuk was uh, interesting because um, he was pre exiled there was a time when the when the tribe of Judah, the last remaining tribe, it, the, tri- the ten tribes of Israel, they've been gone for about a hundred years or so, We're in the 600 BC area, and Judah is still around. But um, Habakkuk uh, uh, comes along, and he uh, looks ahead to a time when Ju- even Judah will be taken in exile. He's a pre-exile prophet. Daniel. Uh, is an exilic prophet. He is a prophet, a, a person who speaks during the exile. Um, and so uh, why why go through this? Well, there, there's so many parallels. Like in Habakkuk, um, we we find him to be someone who's somewhat aggressive. He's kind of a frustrated intercessor. He's been praying to God. He feels like he's getting, getting the glass ceiling, like his prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, falling to the ground. Um, and so he goes from that perspective to being someone who sits in silence after the Lord answers him. The Lord answers him and says, I hear you. I'm just hearing your prayers, Habakkuk. And I want to let you know that I'm answering those prayers. And here's the way I'm going to answer them. I'm going to bring Babylonia down, and they're going to discipline Judah. And Habakkuk goes, no, 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 no not not that. And he goes, oh, yes, that's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and yet Babylon themselves will be disciplined. And, and after an exchange, Habakkuk ends up in silence and in awe before the living God. And he ends up saying, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though the be no uh, fruit upon the vine, though the olive tree casts its fruit, though the flax are, though the flocks are scattered, though all that happens, yet I will praise him, I will trust in the Lord. He comes into this place of, of solid, foundational trust in the Lord, even though he knows that horror is coming. And he probably lived through it. He was probably in that place. Um, that's, that's Habakkuk. And the you know, Lord tells him, I'm going to discipline you. And what he meant was horror beyond description. I mean, just terrible things. Mass death and suffering, cannibalism, <laughs> where people were, were uh, I mean, you, it's in the Bible, graphic, that they were eating their children for food. They were so starving from the, the way that they, the uh, warfare was going. The temple destroyed, captives taken to Babylon. And so there, there's major points in Habakkuk that we went through. That A, God hears us when we pray. He does hear those prayers. He hears our intercession. Um, and He values that conversation. He values the talking with us. What, so the alternative is not good. Turning your back and, and saying, saying, forget it. He's not listening. I'm not, I'm not engaging anymore. The Lord from Habakkuk, the back of. Either way you want to say it, I okay, will say it seven different ways. But from habit we know that that's not true. That though there might not be a response, he deeply values that conversation. He's hearing you, and your intercession makes a difference. The Lord told Habitat, your intercession is making a difference. Here's how I'm going to answer. You may not like the answer, but I am going to answer. You don't like the the idolatry? Neither do I. Here's, here's how we're going to solve that. Um, uh, but he's not bound by our expectations. He's not bound by our demands. He's not going to do it the way that we prescribe for him to do that. That's why I don't, I'm, not, I'm not particularly fond of myself of, of giving very prescriptive prayers. Lord, if you would do this, and I, I would recommend that you do this with a, a 12-person committee in terms of addressing things and meeting for three months, etc. The Lord says, I, I hear your heart. I know where you want to go with this, and I want to let you know I'm on, I'm on top of it. Um, he raised up the Lord. It's very clear in the Bible. The Lord raised up the Babylonians. It wasn't the Lord allowed it. It wasn't like he, he uh, you know, he kind of was passive or he, he was the same with the wheel. He raised them up. Um, and the action was the most direct means. It was the fastest way to get Judah to the place where they wanted to be, where they need to be. That's, that's one of the uh, big themes that if we could get it tattooed on, someplace on our, on our forehead or something like that, the, to understand about the end times the Lord is using the most efficient way to get us to the deepest heart of love with the, and still honor our free will um, he uses the most the least impactful means to get us to the deepest heart of love uh, without violating our free will and in the case of Judah that's what he did it was an important book because it relates so much to our current times, where we think we understand how things are going with the political scene. We think we understand who needs to be in office, where, and why. And it says, I'm doing something in your time, when if you were to hear it, you would not believe it. Um, and so Daniel, um, as we go through, I'm hoping to be constantly reminded that Daniel is in exile. He was somebody pulled out. Of of Judah, poured out of his native land, and, and in Babylon the whole time, and and that's going to be really key because Daniel is one extraordinary guy. I mean, uh, I mean that's that's not just me saying that. That's that's uh, for instance Ezekiel saying that. That's God telling Ezekiel that very same thing. Ezekiel was a co-exilic prophet, prophesized during the exile as well. And Ezekiel is talking to the Lord, and the Lord says, "I'm going to bring." I, I don't know if I have this verse in here. Probably later, but he says I'm going to bring uh, judgment, and it's going to be such that even if Job and Noah and Daniel were before me uh, interceding, they would save themselves. But the judgment will still come. It's so certain, which which is a terrifying thing. But the point there is uh, Ezekiel hears about three men that are that are righteous, who of whom. Nothing negative was written in the Bible. Job, Noah, and Daniel. Daniel was one of those three. And so he, he is very highly esteemed. So let's talk about him a little bit. Um, he's called a prophet, but he really doesn't prophesy. Uh, I mean, he does, but he's not talking to the nation. He's not he's not prophesying to the nation. You know who calls him a prophet is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus gives him that title. Yeah, and I'm sure others in, in that day too. I, I think Jesus was, was following what was a common term for him. But but we we are comfortable calling him a prophet because Jesus calls him a prophet in Matthew 24 when Jesus is talking about the end times. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but he lived in a foreign land. He lived in a land far away, you know, some hundreds of miles away, um, and, uh, and and that area wanted him really badly to adapt to their to their culture. They wanted him really badly to conform to their habits, their diets, their religion. They tried to squeeze him into their mold. And for 70 years, he lived in that exiled land, and he did not conform. He was his own man for 70 years in a land that was absolutely opposed to that. Um, and so are we. We are aliens and strangers. You all are, if you know the Lord, you are citizens of a different country. Like Philippians says, we are aliens and strangers on this earth, citizens of heaven. Like Philippians 3 says. Um, we don't have a lasting city here. We're living here temporarily, so was Daniel. He was he an was exile, pulled up in an area that he, he didn't dream of, didn't want, uh, and, and knew that we are seeking a city which is to come. Hebrews 13 14. Um, so his condition is a lot like ours in terms of his, his surroundings or circumstances. And the way that he navigated life as an alien in that area. In a foreign land has big time value for us right now uh, because we are aliens in this world. We are we are different people. We have citizenship elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so highlights of significant stories. We're going to go through Daniel. I'm hoping to get through maybe three verses tonight. <laughs> it won't be that long throughout the rest. But mostly, I want to give some background so that we understand, so that we can empathize. What well, I, f- I really find it helpful to be able to put myself. In somebody else's shoes and ask myself what are they thinking from their perspective you know as they see the world through their eyes well to understand that world from Daniel's point of view to see the world from Daniel's eyes you've got to understand where Daniel was coming from um, but work as we go through Daniel we're going to learn that he uh, is the guy who refused to eat the king's food you know he, he's as a young man as a probably a 13 I mean a, more like actually 16 17 year old he negotiated a way to actually live in the land and not defile himself by eating the food that, in his mind, was was forbidden, meat sacrifice to idols, but also very choice, fatty foods and things that were not as healthy. He navigated a way to do that in his wisdom, a very wise man. Um, he uh, is known for discerning and interpreting the king's dream. The king, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. We'll read about that in some weeks to come. And uh, and the king requires all the wise men of the land to uh, not just give him the interpretation of the dream, because the king, as being uh, wise in himself, knows that anybody can come up with an interpretation might be right or might be wrong. I want you to tell me what the dream was, then tell me the interpretation. Tell me what I dreamed, and then I will tell you the interpretation. And, and so we're to find out that Daniel was the one who ended up not being able to do that. Um, his friends are the ones who refused to bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, the 90 foot some golden image, and they were cast into the fiery furnace ahead of time in, um, in, in response, and they were saved from that. We're going to read about um, the humbling of that king, Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years. Um, as he's out in the grass, uh, as he uh, first exalts himself and the Lord, gives him the word that you are going to be humbled, you are going to be out in the field you're going to be eating, grass like the oxen, and it happened. Uh, for seven years, it happened. Um, we're going to read about Daniel serving the uh, successor to Babylonian. Persia comes in and takes over Babylon. A new king, a Persian king comes in, and Daniel serves that king. And that king loved Daniel, appreciated Daniel as an older man by now, way over 70s, like, well, you know, 80s. Um, and thrown into the lion's den and rescued uh, at that point. Um, about his, and then we're going to read very significantly. We'll get when we get into this in the latter chapters about Daniel's vision of the four beasts uh, and the Son of God seeing Jesus in this image um, and his vim, image of the ram and the vision of the ram and the goat. Um, and um, Daniel's supplication when he realizes that the 70 years that they in Babylon ends. Daniel actually sets his face on interceding. It's time, God, it's time, Moses, to come. It's time. It's time for us to be rescued. I'm reading here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was also a prophet who prophesied before the exile and right during the exile. So Daniel uh, would have known Jeremiah's writings and his struggles, etc. And so he's, he's praying for that, and and he's answered by Gabriel. You know that Gabriel, the one that appeared in the manger, <laughs> the one that appeared to uh, Mary and to Joseph when, when Jesus appeared. That Gabriel appears. To Daniel, in that time and gives him an interpretation. So, so it's um, oh, and we're going to get a, this peek behind the scenes. This amazing um, pull, pulling back the curtain of what's going on between angels and demons as we pray, where uh, where the angel answers Daniel. We heard your prayers, uh, and as soon as you started praying, there were there were angels dispatched, but we were opposed, and we had to fight through. We're going we're to see that curtain pulled back and realize that that's what happened. That's what happened. Our world, we, where we are uh, opposed by those same forces. Um, and so, here we go. Um, Daniel 1. Uh, so, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and besieged it. And uh, I think you know what besiege means, but for years I didn't know what it means. So just assuming you don't, besieging means that you the, the city has walls and they're resisting your uh, your uh, they're not surrendering they're resisting your armed forces. So they basically cut the city off. They surround the city and they basically starve you out. Sometimes they, they build walls up for the for the um, troops to actually go over the wall, but it's basically a starvation mentality, starvation technique starve you out and that's why in the case of um, Jerusalem why there was cannibalism in those times in this case the king of Nebuchadnezzar besieges the city the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand into Nebuchadnezzar's hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them into that land of Shinar to the house of his God Nebuchadnezzar's God and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God and then um, and so let, let's stop right there. Yeah, that's it. So um, I did this a little bit with the backer. I feel like I have to do it again. I just want to give a little bit of history. Because again, we've got to understand where Daniel is coming from. So uh, I'm, here, I'm gonna call this a tad bit of history. Um, and so let's, let's just uh, get our heads into 26, 26 and a half hundred years ago. So 2650. Years ago, which is astounding when you think that you know George Washington was more like two hundred and fifty years ago. We're going twenty six hundred years ago, and it's hard to overstate even that many years ago the impact of this guy, Josiah, King Josiah. Raised, um, uh, you know, he's the grandson of Manasseh, one of the worst kings uh, ever that Israel ever had. In fact, so bad that uh, that. Some of his things, even though he actually turned back to the Lord in his later years, some of his things were never forgiven. And we're going to read that, in fact, he was the reason why Judah was taken over. His actions were. Um, Josiah is his grandson. Uh, Josiah, um, Manasseh, that terrible king, has a, has a son, Amon. Uh, so Manasseh, i uh, Manasseh's king, he's opposed. Amon becomes king. Um, both of them are evil kings. Um, uh, even though that, uh, like I say, Manasseh turned uh, turned back to the Lord, uh, but before he turned, he was pretty bad. Second um, Chronicles 33 uh, talks about this. In fact, there's great history in Second Chronicles 33 and Second uh, Kings 24. Um, so, reading Second Chronicles 33, um, uh, Manasseh uh, in both of the courts of the temple of the Lord built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire, in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. That is that is what that, that is the thing that would not be forgiven. let me just read this. He sacrificed his children in the fire of the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced divination. He practiced witchcraft. He sought omens. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing the Lord's anger. He took an image that he had made, and he put it in the Lord's temple, in which God said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Um, he sacrificed his children in the valley of him uh, that, that valley was cursed forevermore, according to Jeremiah, um, because of those sacrifices, because of the sacrifices of the innocent in that valley. Um, and in fact, when Jesus is talking and he's giving him, uh, and he becomes well first of all so over, over time it becomes so cursed it actually becomes a garbage dump and so they put their garbage in there and they, they, and they would tend to burn it up and so when Jesus is talking about hell when he's giving messages message about hell he's looking out at that valley of Gehenna which is the valley of, uh, of uh, Ben-Hinnom uh, they, uh, Jesus, it's the valley of uh, Gehenna, and so he would look at that and say that those images right there where the fire doesn't go out when the fires continue to burn in the garbage in a cursed area. That's a pretty good image of hell, um, and so that that's where we get that image. And when Jesus is standing, when he says, "You know, that it's better for you to be um, to you know, lose an eye or lose an arm than to be cast into Gehenna," that's what he's talking about. And it starts here, right here, with Manasseh. Um, uh, Manasseh's son Amon, He did not follow the Lord, he, and he's assassinated by his own officials. But before he's assassinated, he has a child. His name is Josiah. So Josiah is eight years old when Amon is assassinated. How did Josiah survive when his dad was assassinated? Well, he was assassinated by officials, by his own corporate officials. And the people rose up and they were so upset that they killed all the officials. So the people were the ones who actually caused Josiah to, to survive. Josiah takes the throne at eight years old. Um, he didn't reign. His, official, his uh, officials reigned, but he was a very young king. Um, and when he becomes uh, uh, active, he tears down altars. He he tears down the altars of the Baals, He cuts the incense altars to pieces. He smashes the Asherah bowls, the pole bowl where they worship, Asherah, and the, and the idols. And he breaks them to pieces. He grinds them to dust. And he scatters the dust over the graves of people who sacrificed to those idols. He burns the bones of priests, of, of the priests who were ministering to those idols and their altars. He purges Jerusalem. He purges Judah of all of the evil. Uh, I'm reading here now from um, from 2nd Chronicles. He tore down the altar and the asherah poles and crushed all, uh, all the idols to powder um, and he cut the pieces of the incense altars throughout Israel. Uh, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he begins to rebuild the temple, which was basically trashed by his father and by his grandfather. And there they find the Torah. There they find the book of the law and they realize they have not been following it, and, G- and Josiah is sick about it. He is, And so he uh, he says, Second Chronicles 34, um, oh my goodness, great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because of those who have gone before us and have not kept the word of the Lord. They, they have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. So Josiah immediately sends his advisors, go find out how deep in trouble we actually are. Go find that prophetess. Uh, and, and she will tell us. And so they, they do. 2 Chronicles 23. She said to them, "This is what the Lord says: I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses that are written in there that have been read in the presence of King Judah, they're going to happen. Because He has forsaken, because they have forsaken Me and burned incense to other gods and aroused My anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched." Just as like man, things are bad. Then she says, Tell the king of Judah, Josiah, tell King Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words that you've heard, because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against his place and his people, because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you. Now I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. And your eyes will not see the disaster I'm about to bring in this place and on those who live there. And so Josiah, through his humility, through his active contrition, saved himself. But it did not, it it delayed, but did not avert the disaster. Nevertheless, Josiah gets right up. He leads the nation to reading the law. They covenant themselves back uh, all into following the Lord. He re-institutes the Passover, which had been neglected for so long. And that Passover they celebrated, When you read it in Chronicles, it was like massive extravagance. Josiah himself provides all the animals, along with his uh, court officials. They're providing all the animals, all the food. It's a massive party for seven days as they celebrate the Passover, um, uh, a seven-day feast. Um, there's, and so these are days of like, big time revival in the kingdom, such uh, such that in Second Chronicles it concludes as long as they lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. What a, what a, what a conclusion. I mean, that's, that's what you want to hear. As long as they lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. They, they had seen nothing like this before. Josiah is killed in battle um, with the Egyptians, which is a long story involving arrogance and pride, which we'll cover some other time. But, but there's a, follows a quick succession of, of, uh, of kings. Um, uh, um, recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 36 um, and so just quickly reading this, the people of the land these people of the land were pretty, po- uh, pretty powerful by the way they took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah and they made him king in Israel over in place of his father um, he was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned three months and then Egypt is rid of Jeho- Jehoahaz um, and he dethrones him they make Eliakim, brother of Jehoahaz king of Judah and they changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. We're going to read about Jehoiachin, but Jehoiakim is the one who is reigning when uh, Daniel gets taken captive. He's 25 years old when he becomes king. He reigns for 11 years. He did evil on the side of the Lord. The king of Babylon attacked him in around 605 B.C. and bound him with bronze shackles. and took him to Babylon. And so 2 Kings 24, this is a different perspective on our first verse or 2 in Daniel. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, meaning he was serving the king of Nebuchadnezzar, but in Jerusalem. But then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and he rebelled. The Lord sent uh, Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord. Uh, proclaimed by his servants and prophets. Um, and so that's that's the story of Jehoiakim, and that's when Daniel gets taken captive right then. So um, in 2 Kings 24, it concludes, surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh, his grandfather, and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. That's the conclusion of 2 Kings 24. The shedding of innocent blood in that in that valley of Himor, Said uh, he, uh the Lord says in verse 2 of chapter 24 of 2 Kings, he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. That's the key reason why abortion and our praying against abortion is, is something we do uh, every day. Um, it's not just another issue it's the shedding of innocent blood that, caught, that catches God's attention that gets him so concerned so great laser focused on you are going too far when you start taking innocent blood at that point you've gone too far it require I mean it, it takes therefore for a regular position in our in our every uh, everyday uh, intercession times at nine o'clock we' just Lord continue to just just hit against abortion that's why it's more it's it's not just another Christian issue um, Nebuchadnezzar took, the Babylon, uh, took to Babylon the ark was from the temple of the Lord and he put them in the temple there. And so, just real quick, just to finish this history out, uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim's son uh, succeeds Jehoiakim as king in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim is taken to Babylon. Chin takes the king in, uh, kingdom in Jerusalem. Uh, he's 18 years old when he takes the kingdom and he reigns for three months. He does evil on the side of the Lord. And king Nebuchadnezzar, in the spring of about 597 BC, sends for him and brings him to Babylon together with the Articles of Value from the temple of the Lord. Um, his uncle, another son of Josiah, Zedekiah, king of Judah, uh, becomes king. He's 21 when he becomes king. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. He does not humble himself before the Lord. He does not humble himself before the words of Jeremiah the prophet. And so when you read the book of Jeremiah, Zedekiah plays a major role that way. Um, he rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar who had uh, made him take an oath in God's name and all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful um, and so in that time uh, the Lord uh, sends Babylon against Jerusalem for the final time in 587 BC um, and so in 2 Chronicles 36 it concludes the Lord the God of their ancestors sent word to them over and over again because he had pity on his people in his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people. And there was no remedy. Um, it says that they brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and did not spare the young men or the young women or the elderly or the infirm. Spared nobody. Um, God gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, carried to Babylon, all their articles of the temple of God, both large and small. They set fire to uh, God's temple, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, they burned all the palaces, and they destroyed, and destroyed everything of value there. They took some exiles, uh, that, and Daniel was among that group. So that, that's a little bit of history. And here's the point. Um, Daniel lived through all this. Daniel was, was in that environment. Um, he, he was a boy in Jerusalem when King Josiah reigns. He's a boy during that time when he sees the revival, and when he sees all those reforms. Um, and so he sees the fruits of godliness all around him. Uh, he saw, and he certainly heard from his parents, because I think he had really godly parents, um, the massive difference between darkness and light. Now, he, not everybody in Jerusalem is, is embracing Josiah's reforms. You can tell that, because as soon as as Josiah's son comes on the scene, they turn immediately back to idol worship, they turn immediately back to trash in the temple and things, and the high places go back up in the hills and they're worshiping the Asherah poles again. Uh, and so not everybody has these reforms, but Daniel, and I convinced Daniel's family, bought in. They're like, This is the way to go. We like we like the cleanliness, we like the clear connection with the Lord of the Lord of hosts. Um and so he sees that around him. Um he uh it had a big influence on him. And so when Josiah is killed in battle, it is just a heartbreak for Daniel. Um, uh, he, Daniel was there when Jerusalem was attacked. Um, and so uh, he's there, and he's captured during that first attack as a young boy. Parents probably killed Daniel as a young, uh, up-and-coming, promising boy, Learn that, that they're looking for people who are good-looking, um, who are uh, noble, princely, good-looking, wise. And Daniel meets all these characteristics, so he's spared. Um, uh, um, he's captured. Um, he sees how powerless they are to resist as the, uh, as the Babylonians carry all the gold articles out of the temple. Um, he's castrated, uh, which was their practice. And so he's made to be a eunuch. Um, and so as a young boy, all promise of any, any line, any biological line, any children, done. Um, and so it's tragic I mean it's it's horrible he's seen the best of Israel under the king Josiah he's seen uh, the worst of it in terms of of Judah being taken captive and that's his perspective Um, he was uh, in fact described uh, in an earlier prophet's work in the book of Isaiah Uh, Isaiah is is talking to king Hezekiah and and Hezekiah received this is years before years before Hezekiah receives a visit from Babylon and, and Isaiah comes in, Hezekiah, and says, did you uh, have a visitor from Babylon? Yes, I did. Well, what did you show? I showed him everything. I showed him all were our treasure. I showed him everything in the kingdom. I showed him all the, all the uh, articles of gold in the temple. Isaiah says, OK, here's what's going to happen. Isaiah 39, verse 5. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all, your predecessors, uh, all that your predecessors have stored up until this day Will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be born to you, they will be taken away. So that's that's Daniel. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This prophecy of Isaiah uh, speaks to a record to Daniel's condition and his three fear of the friends as well, along with many of the other young men. So uh, so as we're reading through Daniel, we're, we're going to get locked into some of the prophecies and some of the anticipation of, of, uh, of things that have happened throughout history. Because Daniel is basically <laughs> uh, is given a vision that prophesies through major segments of history throughout time, up, up, into, uh, up to and including right now. And in the, in the time to come, we're going to see that. But all the while, realize that this is, a, this is a guy who went through All that he went through. He saw the height of Israel, I mean of Judah, uh, and he saw the depths of depravity in Judah. And he's taken off and he's castrated and he's placed in the service of a a foreign nation and he's living as an alien in a foreign land. And and to get your head around that, to empathize just a little bit, makes me super impressed with a man like Daniel who is known for, for instance, praying three times a day facing the east. Continually asking the Lord to come, continually interceding before the Lord, not giving an iron grip on the living God. Um, we know more about him than we do about most prophets. Um, he was probably uh, he was probably 16 or so when when Josiah died. He was around when uh, when Jeremiah was commissioned. The priest was probably 13 years old at that point. Uh, we know that he was uh, of the royal house. Somehow he's associated with royalty. Um, and he's reared in close contacts, therefore, with some of the highest people in the land. Um, taken as a youth, maybe a eunuch, like Isaiah predicted. Um, born to rule. Um, he never dreamed of slavery, never dreamed of wor- working for uh, a heathen monarch in a foreign land. But part of that born to rule is is an important lesson for us uh, because because there is a mentality um, that you have when you actually think to yourself, think of yourself as royalty. It's a different mentality. Royal people are different than, than, uh, than people who are, for instance, born into slavery. Um, and it's, it's, it's a different, it's not that they're different in character. It's just that they're raised and they have a different ma- mind of thinking. Somebody who's born, and, and, that's what, and by the way, you have control over that thinking. <laughs> you, you get to think of yourself as the princes and the princesses that you actually are in terms of your statue before the Lord. But you can tell, sometimes people, you know, the, the story I heard from a, a preacher up in Bethel one time about how they built housing, uh, housing for, uh, for people, uh, in, impoverished people, um, under the Housing and Urban Development Program, Build these beautiful houses. and People would come in and basically trash it because they didn't really have a grid beauty, they didn't really have a grit for how to uh, how to have nice things because they were coming from a slave mentality, uh, which is made uh, very very victim-minded mentality. Very, uh, I can't I can't break out of this cycle mentality, and it is a mentality. Something can be broken. Daniel uh, has the gift of being raised in royalty, so he has a different perspective. Where royalty are used to actually. Uh, Coming up with a plan and executing, coming up with something and making it happen, and so he's—that's uh, part of the reason why uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wants people of royal blood. He wants people who are used to seeing things from a princely perspective, and it's something that we have to over as well. Um, uh, so um, Daniel was not involved in the sin of the day. Um, he wasn't involved um, in the uh, in the sins of his fathers. Uh, or of the people around him. He, he's a victim of God's wrath. He was innocent. And the innocent, that's the tragedy of these kind of judgments of God. The innocent suffer with the guilty. Um, uh, I mentioned before that he's uh, he, hes an amazing guy because he's in the public eye. He, he becomes what is, in essence, the prime minister of Babylon through a series of events where, well, through that interpretation of the dream that he has. So he's very visible. And he's not doing these things in a corner. And for 70 years, there is no (laughs) accusation, no negative judgment, no negative comment about Daniel for this entire 70 years. Um, uh, In fact, uh, at some point, um, people are trying to find an accusation for him. And they finally decide, how can we actually his his fellow administrators are jealous of him? And so they're looking for a way to trap Daniel. we watched his character. There, there's, I mean, we watched him. We snuck up on him. We kind of peek over the door to see what he's doing at night. We can't find any basis. The only way that we'll actually be able to find him uh, is it has to have something to do with the law of his God. And We have to trap him in something where he's a more aligned and has greater reach of the law of God than he does to the Babylonian law. That's the only way we're going to trap this guy. That's Daniel. We're told three different times by God messengers that he's greatly beloved the angels come down and describe him as greatly, as the greatly beloved uh, Daniel. In fact, I talked about uh, this verse in Ezekiel. Um, uh, significantly, in that same chapter in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is told that, hey, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job appear before me, they will save themselves by the righteousness, but, uh, but nevertheless, the land is going to suffer the wrath. Um, in that same chapter, Ezekiel says, yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it, and they will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, Ezekiel, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I've brought under Jerusalem. Every disaster I've brought under, you will be consoled when you see their contact, and you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause. Ezekiel is told that as he sees the conduct of some of, of, some of those exiles, including Dan, he's talking about Dan, he's talking about the others. Um, it's going to be so inspiring to be among people fervently serving and giving time and treasure to the kingdom, serving a certain amount of lifestyle. It's going to be so inspiring. You're going to be comforted in the midst of all this loss, um, and so that's why I love uh, going to the One Thing Conference. We used to go there every, you know, when they don't have it anymore. But in Kansas City, we go there. It's 15 to 20,000 young people and several old people. Um, going there and worshiping the Lord, I mean, passionately. And people up on the stage are worshiping the Lord passionately. And you're in this massive auditorium that can hold all those people on a second floor. 15,000 people jumping up to the music, and you can feel the floor light vibrating. And you know, I always look at I think, the structurally and anyway. <laughs> Um, So you're, you're, it's fantastic, because you get swept up in the fact that Man, I've been living in a dry spell in terms of living in a land where people rarely acknowledge the Lord in my day-to-day goings on. And here I'm around 15 people who are going crazy over Jesus right now. It's so inspiring. Uh, it, and it's so inspiring. That's why I like hanging out with y'all because C- you guys are doing the same thing. You're coming in daily, every day, sitting before the Lord, worshiping you, you guys on Jitsi, too. Um, fervent in prayer, Giving yourselves to him, uh, you know, the best that you know how, constantly, constantly sitting before him. Uh, we see how you raise your kids. We see how you're actually managing your life. How you're keeping your it check. It, it's a comfort. I mean, it, it, that, that's what Ezekiel's talking about. You will be comforted when you see the way that people are living around you, the, the choices that they have, the things that they neglect, uh, that they refuse to do, the things that they've embraced. You're going to be comforted as you see one another. And that, that's part of the reason why Fellowship is so important. It's part of the reason why COVID has been so devastating is we don't really get to be around one another. This is this is a rare treat. We haven't been like this except you know for months and months. Um, and so we get the chance to be comforted by one another as we see each other's lifestyles, watching how you deal with disappointment, how you deal with um, with success. Um, so I want to quickly uh, just for completion's um, sure sake talk about. Um, the book of Daniel, because as we go through it, you're going to be astounded at the level of detail that Daniel predicted in, six, in, in the 600, 500 uh, BC time frame about what's going to happen in the 300 BC time frame, 200 BC time frame, and throughout human history. And it's so precise that most uh, liberal uh, religious critics think no way that he could have that, in, impossible. In fact, back in the early uh, 200s, There was a guy named uh, Porphyry who uh, asserted that it had to have been written. Uh, It could not have been written. Daniel didn't write it. It had to have been written in 165 BC, because things are way too spooky accurate. Um, And he was devastating uh, in terms of that criticism, because he was actually raised, uh, trained under this guy, Origen, a very famous early church father. And then he left the faith and went back to his uh, pagan roots, and and started to attack Christianity from that perspective. He said it it can't be historically accurate. Um, uh, It had to be written much later. How did he know about Darius the Mede? Um, uh, The timing of the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar differs from the way Jeremiah described it. Beltazar, the the king, the one who saw the right on the wall, he never existed. Um, I mean, in other words, there's no record of him in the Babylonian history. How, How come Daniel says he existed? In fact, Darius immediate is not even in the Persian uh, literature, um, and and by the way, the, the languages uh, that Daniel White's in are way too modern. Uh, Daniel the Book of Daniel is written in both Hebrew and Aramaic, and he said that Aramaic is way, way too modern. It's way too aged. Uh, uh, later, Th- those are the those are the primary criticisms. There's, the criticisms. There's others. Here's two or three answers on those. Um, you know, in terms of. How could he know about Greece, which didn't? Greece was not a superpower by then, and yet he says Greece is going to overtake uh, in one of his in the vision of the four uh, kingdoms. How do you know about Greece? Um, how do you know about Darius the Mede? Um, most critics, simply, I mean, especially liberal critics, just don't have a great for prophecy. I mean, that, that's you, you just got to recognize that that's a that's a fundamental bias that you know. Uh, there, there has to be another explanation besides the one that God did. <laughs> we'll look for anything else we can find. And so, one thing is just, you know, they can't accept that it might be true. Um, it's uh, Even though telling things that are going to happen in the future, that's unique to the Bible. That's what the Bible does in so many cases, and accurately in so many cases. And what Jesus, first of all, is a, a product of, you know, product, you know what I mean by product, where, in other words, he's predicted so much through the Old Testament time and he exists, but also the way that Jesus is talking about the end times of coming can rely on the prophecies and predictions that are found here in this word. So I, I don't think really I take that, much, uh, that uh, too much uh, to heart. Je- even Jesus prophesied in John 14, 29. He said, you know, you've heard me say I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad because I go to the Father, for the Father is, glad- is greater than I. But I told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that so Jesus is prophesying here. And that prophecy actually happened, right? What about King are that he never existed? this um, he's, he's that last king who threw that big party. Um, and in the middle of the party, oh, oh, and he says, hey, let's this, by the way, and so then he makes this big error. Bring out the golden goblets from the temple of Israel that we took right back when we took the So Bring them all out. Let's fill them with wine. Let's kind of like have some fun with those things. So he's drinking out of the sacred implements from the temple of God, and that's when he sees a human hand appear in the wall and start to write. That Czar. There's no Babylonian record of that king, and so critics would say, you know, Daniel made that up. I mean, not Daniel. They don't claim that Daniel wrote it. They say the authors of this book, probably a set of two or three holy men in 165 B.C., made that story up because there's no Belshazzar, and and we've seen no archaeological artifacts that even mention Belshazzar. No, no, historical record. Uh, it was a pretty serious jolt actually, to, to, because he was, he's called King Bel Belshazzar. Bel- to Belshazzar. Thank you. Um, Then they find these clay tablets. They find uh, these tablets with Belshazzar's name on them, including one that has him listed as King Nabonidius' son. Nabonidius was the king. Um, And so Belshazzar was his son. um, And in fact, they find this other clay tablet that says the two businessmen make an agreement. They seal a contract between them in the name of Nabonidius and Belshazzar. So what seems to have happened, and what, what conservative scholars say now is that the king's son, Belshazzar, reigned, co-reigned, while King uh, Nabondius was out and about. And doing that, Nabondius had an affection for collecting antiquities. He'd go and actually look at the foundation of old buildings, find the cornerstone, see if anybody put any documents in the middle of the cornerstone. Um, so he loved that. So he was away from the kingdom for quite a while. And Belshazzar uh, was, was administering for quite a bit of time. So uh, yes, he existed. Yes, he was probably king during that time. And, and what, why was he called king? Well, he was king in absentia while his father was away. Um, what about the timing? Well, um, uh, you know, if Daniel really was written later, um, so, what, sorry, what about the timing in terms of Jeremiah seeing a different day for Nebuchadnezzar coming and storming the kingdom than Daniel, than, uh, Daniel writes? It seems to be two different days, and how can that, how can that be, especially when Daniel knew Jeremiah? I mean, they, I'm not sure that they were, they were great friends, but they were contemporaries, and they're living during some of the most egregious time in, in uh, Jerusalem. If Daniel really was written later, it's maybe one of the best arguments. Because uh, had Daniel been written in 165 uh, as opposed to 600, he, he would have the, the guys who were writing it, that group, who was trying to basically force through this conspiracy on they would have looked at Jeremiah. And they would have made sure to write the date exactly like Jeremiah had. Because they had the benefit of writing it. But Daniel's writing a date from his perspective, and, Dan- and Jeremiah's writing a date from their perspective. What seems to have happened is that they're about six months off, and, and so one of them is writing from a Jewish time frame and one of them is writing from a Babylonian time frame. They have two different timings, but it, it seems to give confidence to the accuracy and the veracity of the book of Daniel because the dates are different. They're close enough in time that it's not a significant difference, but, it's, but they're far enough away to make you realize if somebody is trying to put, put forth a forgery, they're not going to make that mistake. They're going to actually make sure that they follow what Jeremiah said. And so it's one of those things that, that um, comes back on them. The biggest reason to have confidence that Daniel was written uh, and that Daniel was a prophet um, is Jesus. Jesus quotes Daniel, and uh, he says uh, that it's important to understand his writings and uh, to go into the end times. In fact, I'm going to read this part out of Matthew 24, 14. Remember, Jesus is coming from the temple. His disciples see the uh, the temple. They go, isn't this a beautiful temple? Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. This temple is going to be destroyed. Not one brick is going to be on top of the other brick. It's going to be so bad. Um, and they go, well, tell us when these things are going to happen. Jesus goes into his that uh, Discourse, where he describes what's going to happen in the future times. a very important chapter for understanding end times. But he concludes that when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination of cause desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let no one in the house stop go down and take anything out of the house. Um, that little phrase there, that little throwaway phrase, um, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, is our mandate. That's our objective. We're the readers. We're, we're going to understand. <laughs> we're going to go back right through. Jesus says, when you see that thing happen in the temple, let the reader understand. Go back and understand what that means. Understand what Daniel was getting at when he spoke of that. Because that's important to know. Because when you see that thing, know what you're seeing, and then flee. And so that's why, that's part of the big reason why we want to go through uh, Daniel right now. Most times I don't pay attention to, um, critics of scripture, um, it's, it's distracting to me. I mean I it just I don't really have uh, time for it. Most of the times it's fruitless. Most of the time some some this is not very nice to say, but some literal liberal critic is trying to make a name for themselves by publishing something that, you know, it gives them prominence among all their other literary friends. Uh, I think it's a kind of a rat hole. I go with first Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If I go with 2 Peter 1.20, Above all, no, realize that no prophecy of Scripture came about by that prophet's own interpretation of things, for no prophecy ever had its origin in the human world. The prophets, the human, uh, though humans, spoke from God as they were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I go with the canon. I just go with already approved a, a doctrine from the canon. It just it just serves me well. I, I don't I don't mind people going back and looking to build themselves confidence and, and getting that. But I generally don't go into this detail about Daniel, except that I have a feeling there's going to be days coming when when Daniel is going to be questioned, and you're going to wonder whether Daniel can be relied on, whether his prophecy can be relied on in our day. And I want to let you know it's reliable here. Um, So, um...